Listener Production. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just The Gist, a weekly-ish podcast where Rosie Waterland gives us just the gist, just, you know, the bare minimum of information that we need to know to be able to bluff our way through a dinner party, talking about a topic that she finds interesting, which this week is going to be... Oh, Jacob Stanley. This week it's a random one and you're not going to have any idea of who I'm talking about unless you've randomly gone down some Reddit rabbit hole that I'm not expecting. But this week I'm doing the story of the guy that the terminal is based on, Moran Karimi Nasseri. Uh-huh. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, so you know the movie The Terminal? The movie The Terminal. No, I don't know the, the movie, movie The, the terminal. terminal. Came out in the early 2000s and it stars Tom Hanks as a guy who, because of like weird passport bureaucracy, gets locked out of his own country when he lands in JFK, but he also doesn't have ID to get into America. So he can't fly back and he can't leave the airport. So he lives at the airport for nine months and falls in love with Catherine Zeta-Jones. Did you decide to go down this rabbit hole because of what happened with Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson and Corona? Were you going back and watching oh, no, the Tom Hanks really. catalogue? But that <laughs> just <laughs> no, in case. That is a, it is a movie starting. But this okay, but wait, you'll hear. So this is crazy interesting. I promise. I never tell you enough to get through a dinner party unless it's something interesting to talk about at a no dinner doubt, party. Yeah. Um, so the guy that that movie is based on is called Moran Karimi Nasseri, except he didn't get stuck at an airport for nine months. He lived at an airport in France for 18 years. What? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See? It's interesting. <laughs> and I sort of got onto this story just because we're all stuck inside right now. And um, he's actually been on my list for a while of uh, just the gist that I wanted to do. Yeah. And I was thinking about it the other day and I was like, this is actually the perfect one to do right now because we're all bloody stuck at home. That's so um, smart. And he lived at an airport for 18 years. And this is actually one of those stories that is so unbelievable that people actually started to talk about it like it. People are like, no, that's not true. That's an urban legend. Like, that's not a true story. Yeah. But it is actually true. This guy, he's um, otherwise known as Alfred because he started calling himself Alfred, mm. got stuck living at an airport for 18 years. So I'm going to tell you about how that actually went down. Um so keen. <laughs> Consider me strapped in. But are we doing um, I know. breaking news this week? Breaking news, breaking news. X-ray, X-ray, read all about it. Get the scoop, see? Get the scoop right here. Okay, first of all, my first breaking news is that a bit of a fight broke out on my Instagram because someone said they didn't like it when I do the breaking news song. <laughs> <laughs> and things went a bit crazy. Like, so someone said, please don't do the breaking news, like, tune anymore. It's so annoying. And I think I wrote something like, um, too bad, I'll do it forever. Like, I was just mm. joking. And then, um, and then she commented back, I'm allowed to have my own opinion. And then all these people who are trying to, like, you know, stick up for you, jumped in and they were like, why are you being so mean to Rosie? I love the breaking news tune. And then all these people, and I was like, oh my God, guys, I really don't care. Like, 
people are going to like it or they're not. Like, mm. I've been in the public eye for long enough. And then this woman who had jumped in to tell me she found it annoying then got, like, jumped on by all these other people telling her she had been rude for saying she didn't like the breaking news tune. And then she was like, guys, it's just my opinion. I think it's silly. I wish she wouldn't do it. And then they were all like, we love it. Stop being mean to Rosie. And I turned into this whole thing on the Instagram. So then I just did my favourite thing that I do on the internet when people get fired up about something that I can't be bothered with. I just wrote, okay, Susan, with a laughing face emoji. But then that really upset her and she got angry and stopped following. <laughs> so if you're listening, Susan, I don't remember your real name. <laughs> I'm sorry you got upset. I honestly thought it was funny that you didn't like the breaking news tune. Thank you to the well-intentioned people who stood up for me, but I really don't mind. And the whole thing was just kind of funny to me at like eight o'clock on a Tuesday night when we've all got cabin fever and we're stuck inside and going a bit crazy. Yeah, that's the thing. This is just a side effect of the <laughs> lockdown. I know. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, so I just thought that was funny. Um, what else? I feel like I don't really know any other breaking news this week. Well, Bojo's I've... in intensive care. Who? Boris Johnson, oh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK, yeah, in intensive right. care with corona. Oh, is he that bad? Didn't you know that? No. Yeah, he's bad. Oh. Everyone keeps waiting for the tweet saying RIP Bojo. So hopefully that doesn't come. Oh. Um, no, all I've really been hearing about is um, Pell. Oh, gross. Ugh. Mm. What's your take on that? I think the... Um, our legal system is skewed towards perpetrators in instances like this because, you know, the reason they overturned his conviction yesterday is because they said that the witness was um, credible and seemed honest, but the difference was they didn't deem the witness, the witness's testimony reliable because it had been so long and it was basically just his word against Pell's and there was no physical evidence to back it up. But the thing with historical sex abuse cases, particularly against children, is there is no evidence to back it up. The evidence is the testimony of the victim. Mm -hmm. And if that's the reason they overturned it, because the testimony of the victim isn't enough to prove guilt beyond all reasonable doubt, mm -hmm. then that means the system is broken. Mm -hmm. Like, I get that according to the law... Technically, his conviction should have been overturned yesterday, but I also think that means there is a problem in the law. Yeah. And it was more than just one victim, right? Uh, there were two victims, but there was this case was only based on one victim because the other victim, unfortunately, had taken his own life a few years ago. So oh. this case was only about one victim. Right. Yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Um honestly not knowing anything about it really um mm. it just seems really hard to understand that when a jury decided that he was guilty then mm. the group of what are they supreme justices seven judges yes in the supreme court seven high court seven whatever we call it here decided to just overturn it so well, that's the thing because judges technically have to go off the rule of law mm. and the rule of law was that 
there wasn't enough evidence beyond all reasonable doubt. But my question is, isn't that why you have juries to make decisions like that when it could go either way? Mm. And if it couldn't go that way, then why have a jury at all? Mm. And also, is it not on the High Court? I mean, I'm not a lawyer. If you're a lawyer, write to me and tell me why. The High Court judges, they have a chance to set precedent to change things in the future. So they could have all decided, actually, yes, this witness's testimony should be enough to convict him. And that would set a precedent saying that from now on, testimony is enough to convict someone in the future. But they decided not to do that. So yesterday they set a precedent saying, you know, a victim's testimony isn't really enough. We need something else. And in these cases, there rarely, rarely is something else. Mm. So you're kind of stuck with a catch-22. What are you meant to do? Yeah. All I can say is the victim, he released a statement um, saying uh, basically that he understands that it's the rule of law. He understands that, you know, technically according, according to the law, that was the way it had to go and he respects that. But he said he also hopes that this doesn't discourage other people, other victims from coming forward and telling their stories mm-hmm. because it's very easy to look at what happened yesterday and to say, well, what's the point? You go through all of that. It ruins your life. You re-dig up all this stuff that is traumatising. You know, I mean, obviously this guy's still anonymous, but he had to go through the whole, publicly, but he had to go through the whole court case and everything. And so you would get to a point where you just feel like, what is the point? Mm. Like, you get, there's no benefit to you if justice isn't served in the end. But he said, please don't do that because the more people who speak up, the more this will snowball and the more it will reach a critical mass where they simply can't overturn convictions. They have to start taking them seriously. So that's what he said today. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it feels like it's probably not over. Well, I mean, it's now open to civil cases, so he can be sued civilly now, so for money. Mm. And the Catholic Church has a lot of it, so... (laughs) What was really gross was that he got released from jail yesterday and the press were waiting outside the house that he was going to go stay in that night and a box of wine got delivered from Dan Murphy's and a little nun came running down to the gate to pick it up, (laughs) like a case of wine. I was like, ew, get effed. And then the Pope tweeted last night basically comparing him to Jesus, saying, like, Jesus spent time on this earth being persecuted um, and and he didn't say Pell's name specifically, but he said, spare a thought today for people who've been persecuted when they haven't done anything wrong. And it just the whole thing, ugh, the Catholic Church can just get f***ed. <laughs> if it was any other organisation that had anything to do with children that had the track record that they do, they would have been shut down years ago. Mm. Okay, can we get on to some lighter <laughs> topics? Because <laughs> I... Yeah. <laughs> I have some updates to request. You, I'm surprised you brought that up. Uh, oh, yes, go. What updates would you like? I think the only reason that I brought that up is because it's what um, the Batuta Advocate has been posting about for the last couple of days. Ah, so right. That's yes, my and main that's your main source of news. Outlet. Yeah. Um, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I could so easily just Google these things, but I'm just going to go ahead and ask you. You mentioned a couple of months ago that it seemed like Brad and Jennifer Aniston were going to get back together. Mm. Did that ever actually happen? 
Not that I know of. I mean, um, I was reading a couple of days ago, uh, an actor friend of both of theirs said they'll always be best friends, etc. Um, but no, not that I know of. And he's been seen canoodling with some other people, including um, Alia Shawkat, maybe from um, Arrested Development. So Yeah, I think you told me that. Yeah, there's photos of them in the Daily Mail, like, canoodling. So, I don't know. I think he's just doing whatever and, I mean, I feel like she's too good for him now, to be honest, but mm-hmm. I just watched Morning Wars with her and it's amazing. You should watch it. I have actually seen that, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Did you like it? It's really good. It is, yeah, really, really good. Um, okay, my other question was about Elizabeth Holmes because I finally got around to watching The Inventor. Oh, Yeah. Um, yes. So I finally actually got to see her and hear that ridiculous voice that she puts on. <laughs> and I'm so curious to know. I'm Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> Has anything happened in the last few months? With her? Um, no, not that I know of. No. Yeah, I, I haven't read anything. Uh, apparently the court case is meant to be, I think, this year in like July. So... Who knows, with all this corona stuff, what yeah, the dealio is. Yeah, be deferred because of that. Yeah. Mm. Okay, yeah, cool. so. All right, end of questions. Sorry, Susan. Breaking news. That was a breaking news. All right, are you ready for this week's topic? Yes, I'm dying to hear about this guy. What's his name again? Oh, geez. Uh, his name is uh, Moran Karimi Nasiri, but he insists on being called Sir Alfred Nasiri. So, <laughs> are you going to tell yes. us why? <laughs> yes, I am. Good. I feel like I'm going to have to really pull out all the stops to make this sound interesting in the podcast description because at first glance, you're like, what is this about? Who's that guy? What's going on? What movie? Mm. Shut up. So stay tuned. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> if you think being locked at home right now is bad, wait till you get a load of this guy. <laughs> Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Moran Karimi Nasiri got stuck in limbo at Terminal 1 in the Charles de Gaulle Airport in France from August 1988 to July 2006. It was partly because of the bizarre bureaucracy of international travel and passports and citizenship and legal loopholes, but it was also partly because he ended up becoming quite mentally ill. And it's not sort of, people can't figure out if he started going mentally ill and that's why he ended up there or if he started going mentally ill while he was there because he was stuck there. So people still can't really tell. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to call him Alfred because that's what he prefers. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows exactly when he was born because all his ideas long gone and he changes his story quite a bit. But it's believed he was born around 1946, 47, which would make him around 74 today. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born in the Anglo-Persian oil company settlement in Iran. His dad was an Iranian doctor working for the oil company and his mum was a stay-at-home mother. He had five siblings and they had a very privileged life because they were reaping the benefits of all the wealth that came from Western countries mining oil there at the time. Mm-hmm. But then in his early 20s, his dad died. And he says that his mother told him then that she actually wasn't his mother 
that his father had had an affair with a Scottish nurse on the oil base. And because adultery was punishable by death, Alfred's father and his wife agreed to raise him as their own to protect everyone involved. But apparently she was always super pissed about it. And now that his dad was dead and not at risk of getting stoned to death for knocking up a Scottish nurse, she was like, I hate you. I hated your dad for cheating on me. You're not my son. Get lost. I'm cutting you off. And you look like you want to say something. (laughs) That's just heartbreaking. (laughs) I know, I know. So Alfred was devastated, um, not just about the emotional family stuff, obviously, but also because if he gets cut off, he doesn't get any inheritance and Mm. his father was quite wealthy. So they came to an agreement that... um, He would leave, he would go to the UK to study and in exchange for him just disappearing and getting out of her life, she would send him a monthly allowance from his dad's estate. So he enrolled in Yugoslav studies at the University of Bradford, which is in England. Mm -hmm. Um, But after a while, the money stopped coming and he tried to get in touch with his mother slash not mother in Iran, but he couldn't. So eventually he arranged to fly back there to confront her in person. And when he landed in Iran, he got arrested because they had photos of him apparently in England protesting against the Iranian government. So he was put in jail and when his mother slash not mother found out he was there, she paid the bribes to get him out. But on one condition, she made sure that he was only given an immigration passport, meaning he could use it to leave Iran, but he could never get back in. So she was like, you remind me of your dad's affair. Please leave forever. So he does. He leaves. And there's a lot of finicky detail here about where he ends up and where he goes and what happens. But I'll try to narrow it down by saying he bounces around for a few years trying to find asylum in a country that will take him because he's essentially stateless at this point. He's no longer a citizen of Iran, but he's not a citizen anywhere else either. He needs a country to offer him asylum like or citizenship. He needs to be a refugee somewhere. He says at this point he was hoping to go to Glasgow in Scotland to find his real birth mother. He didn't know who she was, but he had sketchy details on it. So his ultimate plan was to go to Scotland to find her. Sorry, this is a spoiler, but do we now know what happened to her? I'm going to tell you. Is that okay? Coming, it's coming. Yeah, that's a spoiler. Spoiler. Mm-hmm. So he finally is offered refugee status in Belgium in 1981. Um, he's in his early 30s now. So from the time his dad died and he found out his mum wasn't his mum and went off to uni, it's been around 10 years. In Belgium, he gets a job at a library and he's getting by with, like, government assistance, but he still really wants to go to Glasgow to find his birth mother. So he saves up some money and he buys a boat ticket from Belgium to London. But here's where he does something weird. Because he believes that he has one UK-born parent, he believes that gives him the right to be a UK citizen. And he said he believed that Because the boat he was on was an English boat, that was the same as being on English soil. So if he got rid of his ID, said he had a UK-born mother, he could claim asylum in the UK while he was on the boat. (laughs) So while he's on the boat from Belgium to London, he gets rid of all his identity papers. (laughs) Anything that says who he is, his refugee status in Belgium, his Belgian refugee passport, everything... He says he mailed it all to the UN High Commission of Refugees in Brussels, but a lot of people believe he just chucked it overboard. But either way, at some point from Belgium to London, 
Mm. Anything that identifies who he is disappears. Mm-hmm. And this is where everything goes to shit because this was the 80s, so there was no electronic record of people. Like without physical papers identifying who you are, you're a bit effed. Mm. So when he gets to England, he doesn't have an ID or a passport, so they send him back to Belgium straight away. They won't let him in the country, so they send him back to Belgium. Mm -hmm. When he gets back to Belgium, he doesn't have any ID proving that he's a refugee citizen of Belgium, so they won't let him into Belgium either, so they send him back to England. Mm -hmm. And when he arrives back in England, they're like, ugh, this guy again, we don't want this to be our problem. So because Belgium didn't take him, they put him on a boat to another place in France. Mm -hmm. And when he gets to France... They don't know what to do with him because he has no passport or ID and they don't want to let him in the country, so they put him in prison for a few months. They say, uh, you were trying to illegally enter the country, so they shove him in prison. Mm-hmm. And when they release him, they tell him he has 24 hours to leave France. So he goes to Charles de Gaulle Airport thinking maybe if he flies to London instead of getting a boat, he'll have a better chance of getting in. But he doesn't. So he flies to London, lands there, has no passport or ID, They won't let him in the country, so they send him on a flight straight back to Charles de Gaulle Airport in France. (laughs) He's literally just getting bounced around to airports and boat ports. No no one's actually letting him into any countries. Hmm. He tries a couple more times to get back to London, who bounce him back to France, who bounce him back to London, who bounce him back to France. Finally, France gets the shits, and they put him in prison for six months. They say, stop trying to enter our country illegally. When they release him, he doesn't know what to do, so he goes to Terminal 1 at Charles de Gaulle Airport, which is technically not France, because if you're in the international terminal at the airport, it's like not, you're not in the country. Mm. He has no money left, so he can't fly to London again. But he does know that as long as he stays inside the airport, he's technically not in France, so he can't be arrested again. Mm -hmm. So he sleeps in Terminal 1 that night, and then another night, and then another night, and that eventually turns into weeks and then months. And then 18 years. So <laughs> at first, at first, and I can, this is where, you know how when I'm researching this stuff for you, I always go, no, but that doesn't make sense. It's, give me more detail. Like that, yeah. don't just give me a soundbite. Like I want to understand. Yeah. So at first it was legal weird bureaucracy that had him stuck there. He didn't have the papers to leave France, but he also didn't have the papers to enter France. Mm. So the authorities were like, ugh, just stay in the airport till we figure it out. So he is kind of stuck there. Uh-huh. He pushes two red cushioned benches together near the McDonald's on the ground floor. He pulls up a little food court table to use as a desk. He gets a flight attendant to give him a pillow and a blanket from a plane, and that essentially becomes his home, this little corner of the food court area. (laughs) A little blanket for... (laughs) Yeah, basically. He slowly starts to build up a collection of stuff. Um, Mm. Passengers would give him books and magazines and money. He mainly ate McDonald's for food, so he would always have a bacon and egg croissant for breakfast and a fish sandwich for dinner, both from McDonald's. He would also eat at a few of the other crappy airport places. There were two bathrooms nearby, public bathrooms, uh, one that had a shower. So he apparently kept himself quite well groomed. That was part Mm. of his routine every day. Someone had given him an electric razor, so he was able to keep clean shaven and stuff. He would get like a shop assistant or a waitress to watch his stuff while he went to the bathroom. (laughs) He apparently just spends his days reading, like 
keeping himself groomed, talking to people who are coming by. After a while, he starts to become a bit of a local celebrity and people would come to see him specifically because they heard that he was there, this kind of urban myth about this guy who lives at the airport and can't leave. Mm. He even opens a little savings account at the bank, at the mini bank in the post office upstairs. So he has a little account that he's putting money in that people give him. The mailman was delivering letters to him, even though he had no actual address dress, people all over France and eventually all over the world would hear about him and sent just things addressed to him at Charles de Gaulle Airport and the mailman knew that was him so they just gave it to him. He kind of like became this bizarre, quirky news story about a man stuck at an airport because of ridiculous bureaucracy and red tape. But here's the thing. After a while, it wasn't just red tape keeping him there. It was also him. So in the first couple of years there, it seems that his mental health started to deteriorate. That's when he started insisting on calling himself Sir Alfred. So he denounces the name Moran Karimi Nasari. He says his name is Sir Alfred Nasari. Mm-hmm. He starts insisting that he was born in Sweden. He denies all connection to Iran. He refuses to speak Farsi. Um, he would only speak English and he would only answer to the name Sir Alfred. Um, mm-hmm. He still insists that he wants to go and find his real family in Scotland. And during this time, a lawyer has come to represent him because France has been like, ugh, we've got to get this guy out of here. So a lawyer goes in and after seven years of wrangling and searching, this lawyer actually finds the papers that Alfred said he sent to um, the UN in Brussels. And so he actually did send his papers there. Uh-huh. So with those papers, the lawyer is able to get the French government to issue Alfred a temporary visa and permission to travel to Scotland, which is all he says he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Now, note that I said this has taken seven years. Mm-hmm. This all sounds very quick, but he's been living there now for seven years. Oh. And the visa and the new papers that the French government issue him are under the name... Moran Karimi Nasari, so he refuses to sign them. They also say that he's Iranian, and he says, I'm not Iranian, I'm Swedish. And so he says he will not sign any papers unless they say that his name is Sir Alfred <laughs> and they say that he's not Iranian. So all he has to do is sign this temporary visa to get out of the airport and go to Scotland, and he won't. So I'm thinking, you know, this is where it's probably true that he's starting to lose it a little bit. It's ironic that he says he's from Sweden because he's basically Stockholm syndromed himself. Yeah, right, (laughs) himself. (laughs) (laughs) So true. So um, a man, a journalist called Michael Padaniti wrote a very famous GQ article called The 15-Year Layover. Uh, He summed it up quite well. He said he asked the lawyer who spent that seven years trying to get him out of there why he think Alfred wouldn't leave when he had the chance. And this is a quote from the article. He says, The lawyer told me that when he'd first met Alfred, the man had been quite lucid in the telling of his story, but that over time he had become free of logic. And so his story kept changing. After Alfred suddenly asserted he was Swedish, the lawyer asked how he then had travelled from Sweden to Iran. Submarine, Alfred said. <laughs> Perhaps he... Yeah. 
Perhaps he was crazy now, but he'd arrived there by several steps. Assume that you are 23, the lawyer said. You finish your studies. Your father dies. At that exact moment, your mother says, I'm not your mother. You have brothers and sisters, but not anymore because you are illegitimate. You are a nobody in your country. You have no rights. And so you ask, who is my mother then? So you leave your country only to return to be imprisoned and then with nowhere to go, whereupon you you are imprisoned again and then once more. In your mind, you have renounced this person and this name that was formerly you. But when, years later, you go to get what you think is your freedom, the papers identify you as that person. How strong does a man have to be to resist so many big shocks? And then the journalist says, well, I asked him, though, why doesn't he just sign the papers and then change his name legally afterwards? Mm. And the lawyer says, let me tell you something. He's not leaving the airport. He's no one outside the airport. He's become a star there or he feels like a star and acts like one. Mm. If you come with a camera, he knows his best side. Otherwise, his personality has broken into pieces. Ooh. Yeah. So that was the first seven years and apparently after that he was losing it more and more and more but he did get into a fairly solid routine he didn't so much rely on the random kindness of strangers anymore he had a pretty lucrative setup where he would do media interviews and let people film him in exchange for a fee he was apparently very dignified and would only ever answer that his situation was temporary when asked why he was living there. Mm. And he said that when given the chance to leave, of course, he would leave straight away and go to Scotland. Mm-hmm. He would get his clothes cleaned at the airport dry cleaner. He would stay clean in the public bathrooms. He collected all the newspaper and magazine articles about himself, which after the GQ story in the early 2000s went massive, there was a lot of media interest in him. Mm-hmm. He eventually had a lot of boxes and bags piled up behind his little red bench and the airport didn't even use those red cushion benches anymore. They had upgraded to steel chairs, but they left his. So he had the only two little red benches left in the airport stuck together to make his little bed. He even, in 2002, acted in a mockumentary movie that an amateur filmmaker wrote about him and shot at Terminal 1. Like, he learned lines and had, like, a shooting schedule and everything. He acted in a movie. It's called Here to Where. You can watch it on Vimeo. It's really weird. But it does give you, like, it's filmed all around his little red bench area so you see it all in detail it's fascinating to watch i highly Mm. recommend you watch it and then in 2003 dreamworks and steven spielberg paid him two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for his life rights so they could make the terminal yeah which he deposited into his little back bank account up in the airport bank Uh, but he didn't really want or need the money he still kept living his life exactly the same way The terminal, though, didn't end up really having anything to do with him. They didn't actually end up using his story because his story is kind of depressing. The terminal ended up being this romantic comedy between Tom Hanks and Catherine Zeta-Jones. But he proudly hung the poster of the movie next to his little bench and told people it was based on him. He also started telling people that Steven Spielberg was going to get him a visa and fly him to California to live. In 2004, he co-wrote his autobiography with a professional writer called Terminal Man. There were also a couple of other French documentaries about him. So he was keeping busy. No kidding. He was filling his days. And then in 2006, after 18 years, 
His stay at Terminal 1 of Charles de Gaulle Airport in France finally came to an end because he needed to be hospitalised for reasons that are still unknown, that's been kept private. Mm. And while he was in hospital, the French government and the airport were finally like, enough is enough. And they packed up his stuff (laughs) and sent him to live in like a homeless unit, kind of like, why are you laughing at my French accent? (laughs) Can you please do that one more time? Enough is enough. Enough is enough. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so they packed up all this stuff and they sent it to a sort of homeless shelter community housing place. And that's where he continues to live till this until this day. He still lives in that homeless shelter that he went straight to from the airport. Even though he's got a $250,000 deposit in his account, he's got Spielberg money. I don't know. (laughs) He's, I mean, yeah, mentally unwell, I guess. Um, And so you asked before about his Scottish mother and what the deal was with that. Mm. Well, I've got some news on that for you. So the amateur filmmaker who made the mockumentary about him is a guy called Paul Basella, and he wrote an article for The Guardian not long after his film had come out and The Terminal had come out, and he said, I felt sorry for him. How could I not? Because one thing was never made quite clear in all the reports and films about Alfred, just how far gone he was. When he got got talking about politics or the economy, you could sense the remnants of a fine mind. But when he turned to his past, you were dragged into the labyrinth of Alfred's fragile mental state. All the stories he had ever told over the years, all the articles ever written about him were jumbled together in his head to produce a narrative that changed from day to day. The more you pressed him, the more absurd his supposed memories would become until he would suddenly stop short and fall silent. There seemed to be something in his past that he needed to forget. Mm. After making um, the mockumentary with him, this guy, Paul, he tracked down his family and he thought it was going to be so hard to track them down because they disowned him and they were in Iran, but they were actually very easy to find. They were a very westernised Iranian family because of their wealth and privilege. And when he talked to them, he realised almost everything Alfred says is not true, just everything about everything. So his five brothers and sisters are all very well-to-do professional people, like one is a banker, one's a lawyer, they live all throughout the world. They said that when Alfred had been to... Well, they refused to call him Alfred, they continued to call him Moran, but Mm. they said that when he'd been at university... He had been supported by and living with one of his brothers in London and he dropped out not because money stopped being sent but because he failed. Apparently he was pretty embarrassed about the fact he failed because being an intellectual was quite important to him so he went randomly travelling around Europe not really sure what to do with himself and at one point while he was travelling something in him changed and people said he started acting strangely and he seemed like a different person and then he just disappeared and they didn't see him for years and they spent years years looking for him and they couldn't find him. They got like international authorities involved. They were really worried about him. They had no idea where he was. And it wasn't until a family friend was traveling through Terminal 1 at Charles de Gaulle in the early 90s that they saw him and they were like, Moran, Moran. And he refused to acknowledge that he even knew that person. 
And so they told his, contacted his family and told them straight away. And they did everything they could to contact him, to see him, to get him home. But he refused to acknowledge that they existed. He wouldn't talk to them. He wouldn't take their help. And so eventually they just gave up. They said, we tried. He didn't seem to want to have any contact with us. And we kind of assumed that he's probably mentally unwell and he's living the life that he insists on living. We can't force him to do anything he doesn't want to do. Saddest of all is his mother, his Iranian mother, Mm. was apparently heartbroken and that he was telling this story about a Scottish woman was the great sadness of her life. And up until the day she died, she would say, he came from me. Why does he say he didn't come from me? So apparently the Scottish woman doesn't even exist. And his mother died heartbroken, not understanding why her son refused to acknowledge that she was actually his mother. I was so so hoping the story was going to have a happy ending. (laughs) No. (laughs) It seems like at some point in his early 20s, something mentally in him went wrong. I mean, it's it's a lot similar to my dad who had schizophrenia. My dad was totally um, mentally uh, normal, charismatic, um, well-functioning until he went to university when he was 18. And about four months into university, he called my grandparents naked, wrapped in a bed sheet from a phone booth. They had to come and pick him up and he got diagnosed with schizophrenia and he was never the same again. Just They say that, I mean, with schizophrenia, it can it generally hits in in your early 20s. I'm not saying that's what he has, but I'm saying something in him in his early 20s changed and snapped Mm. and apparently he was never quite the same and so you can't really rely on anything he says about his life from that point and it also seems like he doesn't even really remember or understand or truly know which memories are real and which aren't Mm. but in terms of publicly no one's really seen or heard from him since he was taken from the airport but, I mean, he must be doing okay if he... I mean, he had all that money. Mm. There's got to be some kind of... So, I mean, and France has an incredible social systems in place. Mm. So there must be some kind of social service taking care of him. Yeah. Do you know for a fact that he's still alive? Yes, he's still alive, apparently. Mm. Yeah. So that's the story of Sir Alfred Nasseri, as he likes to be called. That's a good one. That it's a, a good really, one, isn't it? Really good one. It's wow. an unexpected good one. Yes. And everybody thinks it's this weird urban legend, but no. And this is such a cool one to be able to whip out at a dinner party. Yeah. Just checking on the date. So when did he actually leave Charles de Gaulle Airport? Uh, July 2006. Oh, so he wow. was there from, I think, what did I say? August 1988, mm-hmm. I think, to July 2006. Yeah. Right. Wow. Can you imagine if he was still there in the era of the smartphone and social media? Well, I know, but even that kind of was on the cusp of 2006. I mean, when did the first iPhone come out? Like 2009, 2008? Uh, Seven was the first iPhone, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So he was there when things were, I mean... I can't even imagine. Like, apparently he didn't look great because, you know, he hadn't been outside in years. He'd been eating McDonald's. Like, apparently he just looked, his skin looked a weird colour and he didn't look well and he'd aged really badly. And 
I just can't imagine. It's like being on a spaceship. That's nuts. And what's the name of the documentary again or the mockumentary? Um, the mockumentary is called Here to Wear. You can uh, find it on Vimeo. That's where I found it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's also the Terminal, the movie, although that has nothing to do with his story in the end. Mm-hmm. There's a um, GQ article, which is really popular and probably the article that made him famous. That's called The 15-Year Layover. So mm-hmm. just Google that along with GQ and you'll find that article. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. How wow. so is that? Puts things in perspective, doesn't it? I know. God, we've been home for how long? A few weeks. Yeah. (laughs) We're already starting fights on Instagram. I know. And if I am stuck at the airport for like an hour longer than I need to be, I lose my freaking mind. Can you imagine just never getting to leave? Yeah. I can't. I just and he doesn't sound like he had TV. Apparently, he had a little. Ra- eventually, he had a little radio. Did he speak French? Everything I've read said he spoke English, but I think at the international terminal at this airport, English was pretty commonly yeah, mm. spoken. Yeah. yeah. Good Gregory. one. Thanks. I know. Very good. I was excited right. to do that one this week. I'm definitely going to check so, out um, Here to Wear. That sounds yeah. like good watching for this evening. Yeah. And there's also a, a other couple documentaries about him because um, that one's a mockumentary. It's very weird. Um, but you at least get to see like where he lived and stuff. It's really cool. And you get to see his acting skills. Mm-hmm. But um, if you just Google him, you find all the stuff. But, yeah, cray-cray. Well done. Thanks for that. That's a great Thanks. one. So, um, you're so welcome. So, that was just the gist of that guy. And, um, well, yeah. Cheers to Sir Alfred. It feels weird. Cheers to Sir Alfred. It feels weird because we're both in our own homes, like, basically in our pajamas. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, how do we wrap this up when we're not in the studio together? <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, okay. Virtual clink. Bye, Love you. Virtual clink. Love you. Bye. Bye. Listener.